morning, good afternoon, and good night. And I'm Tiff. I'm Tim. And welcome back to Tiff and Tim's True, True Crime. Crime Podcast. Yes. You. Wherever you are right now, thank you for joining us. And if you are a new subscriber, thank you. We appreciate you. Hello. If you are new to our YouTube, thank you for looking at us because what it do. And if you are listening to us on the podcast and you are already familiar with us, thank you for coming back. Um, with all that being said, please like, subscribe, and leave a comment for all four platforms. And that includes Spotify. Um, today's case is going to be about kids, so please brace yourself for mm-hmm. that. Um, if you don't you know, like the children's cases, then this may not be the case for you today. But um, just wanted to give y'all a little caveat. If you don't like the church. I don't. I don't like cases that involve children. I don't like unsolved cases. And this is just a combination of both. So I'm going to try to get through it. She don't like any of the cases that you. I don't like when the case. Well, yeah, I just don't like cases that involve children. And I typically choose all the ones that are unsolved. And maybe have children in them. I don't know. It's just like the cases with that's unsolved. Yeah, it's, it's like, like they're still out there. They're huh? still out there. <laughs> We're still out there. <laughs> Creeping doom. Right. Especially <laughs> when it comes to like, and then this case is about a serial killer. So it's like it's an unsolved case dealing with children about a serial killer. Oh man, the ones that get me are the ones where I'll be like, "Dang, this is in Texas." Ooh. The ones that give me are the unsolved cases. <laughs> I don't care where it happened. I'd be like, wait, it's, it's here. Ah! It's the unsolved cases. Well, all right. Sit back, relax, because we're going to hand this case over to you quick, fast, and in a hurry. All right. So, as children, we aspire to be many things, whether that be we want to be a basketball player, a football player. The baseball, I wasn't good at none of those things. Um, <laughs> I was a theater kid. I was in there singing and doing plays. <laughs> but our kids here, you know, are never going to be able to do that because their dreams were cut short, so short. Um, our four victims today just really wanted to have a childhood, and it was taken away. Someone killed at least four children in Oakland County, Michigan between 1976 and 1977. The four children were abducted, they were murdered, their bodies were left in various places within the Oakland County area. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this case because it's about to be a bomb with this case, all right? (laughs) Insert sound effects, still working on it. (laughs) So, our first victim was actually Mark Stevens. Mark was a 12-year-old boy who was from Ferndale, Michigan. Mark lived with his mother, and in their home, they practiced the Roman Catholic religion. Mark's mom and dad got a divorce, and while researching for this case, we couldn't find much about his dad, but we were able to find some things about his upbringing Mark was a loner, and he was very quiet, but he was a good student. Mark was in the seventh grade at Lincoln Junior High School, and Mark was about 
four feet, eight inches tall, and he weighed about 100 pounds. So he was just short and small in stature for his, well, it's not for his age, but right. Mark was last so seen. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Mark was last seen at 1.30 p.m. on February 15, 1976. His body was found in Ferndale, Michigan. Yes. So how, they said Mark was a pretty good student. What about you? How was you in? I guess, you know, what was he in middle school? Seventh grade. Yeah, okay. I was pretty good in seventh grade. I was quiet. I didn't talk much. Yeah. I, I had friends, but I was quiet. He was the quiet friend. Mm-hmm. He was one sneaky. I wasn't sneaky. Mm-hmm. I was just quiet. Okay. I'm going to call your mama and ask her. Oh. <laughs> Lord. Me, I mean, I was, I was, yeah, I was loud in seventh, seventh grade. Yeah, I was loud. Still finding myself. Um, I wanted to be in every in crowd that he could be. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I still talk too much to this day. So, I mean, yeah. But yeah. what happened, like, with him, with Mark? Like, you know, you said they found his body, but what happened? Yeah, so Mark was actually found at about 11.45 p.m. on February 19, 1976. A businessman named Mark, and we're just going to call his last name B because I'm not about to butcher this man's last name. No, ma'am. He left his office (laughs) building headed toward a drugstore near the New Orleans Mall that was on 10 Mile and Greenfields Road. On his way, something caught his eye in the northeast corner of the parking lot while walking past. When he, he... Walked towards it, and what he thought to be a mannequin actually wasn't a mannequin. It was actually the lifeless body of Mark Stevens. Unfortunately, um, another person actually told the police that while they were walking their dog around 9.40, no, sorry, 9.30 a.m., he was walking his dog to get some exercise, and the dog has a 20-feet leash. So the man said that if they were able to, they would have been able to find that body because they walked the entire parking lot. So his dog would have stumbled upon it. So if that is to be true, then Mark's body wasn't there at 930, but it was there at 1145 when Mark B found it. So that means that the killer had like a two hour and 15 minute window to place the body there or dump the body there in the area that Mark's body was found in. Mark was actually last seen and heard from 1.30 p.m. on February 15th. He actually had talked to his mom on the phone to let him know that he was leaving the American Legion Hall and he was headed home. But when 11 p.m. came and his mom didn't hear from him, she actually ended up calling the police and found a missing person report with the Oakland Police Department. Sorry, Ferndale Police Department to report him missing. His strawberry blonde hair would have covered his head with the parka that he was wearing because of the cold, thin air in Michigan. After the autopsy, the cause of death was shown as asphyxiation by smothering, but there were also rope burns on his wrist, his ankles, and his neck. It appeared that Mark had actually also been S.A., which is sexual assault, I don't want to say the word, but L. Brooks Patterson, who was the Oakland County prosecutor at the time, said that Mark's body was washed by the autopsy team, which washed away all the fingerprints and other evidence that could have been found. Yeah. Why? Right. What was the point in doing it? Like, what? 
What, why Maybe would they you, didn't even think about it. Were they amateurs? Were they like newbies? Like were they just starting? Like that feel like I feel like to me that's like the first thing you're like, okay, let, let's not wash the body. Let's you know preserve it as is, so we can get whatever clues are on this body. Yeah. And like if he was sexually assaulted, like they said, there would have been you know the juices and stuff. You know, from the killer, and they would have been able to find out who he was. Yeah, true. Like I said, they probably didn't even think about that. Life just don't work just as good as we wanted to, huh? Yes. Not well. Um, we do have another victim, and their name is Jill Robinson. She was twelve years old. Uh, she was twelve year old girl. She lived in Royal Oak, Michigan. Jill lived with her mom. In Royal Oak, and her her father visited on a regular basis. Um, Jill also celebrated. Why do I always say celebrated? Uh, practice. practice the Roman Catholic religion as well. Um, people describe Jill as a loner. They also describe her as very smart in school, just like Mark was. Um, Jill was last seen on December twenty second, and her body was found on December twenty sixth. So that means that Jill did not get, was not able to get a Christmas mm. um, with her family. Now, Carol Robinson had three daughters, and um, she was recently divorced. She and her oldest, Jill, would butt heads often, like any family would, you know? Yeah. And so um, in December of 1976, Jill got into it with her mom. And the crazy thing about it, they got into it over biscuits. Because Jill, mm-hmm. didn't, Jill didn't want to help cook or help her mom cook the biscuits. So, Jill's mom told her, if you don't want to be a part of this family, you can leave. Oh. And come back when you want to be a part of it. Oh, wow. So, um, that's what led Jill to, you know, go ahead and pack up and get ready to get ready to go. Because she was just following oh, the instructions wow. that her mom told her. Yes. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Uh, yes. So Jill was last seen at the Hobby Shop on Woodward Avenue, then at the Donut Shop on Maple Road between 6 a.m. and 7 a.m. on December 23rd. According to Carol, who is Jill's mother, again, I told you, those two were arguing over biscuits. Um, That's what she told the police. Um, And, you know, she... Like I said, asked Jill to help her with the dinner. She decided she didn't want to help cook. She didn't. That's not. That wasn't her ministry, and so she didn't want to do that. So um, she gave police all the details about you know how she told her what to. She needed to go and come back when she was ready to be a family. She Jill's mom said the last thing that she saw her in was she had a plaid blanket and she had it in a, in a denim bag. And before she left, she was dressed in blue jeans a shirt, and an orange winter coat, and a blue knit cap with a yellow design on it. That was the last thing Jill was seen with on. Um, And then she left. So she rode her bike away from her mother's home and her home, and Jill will later be seen by a family member at that hobby shop that I mentioned on Wolver Avenue, just four and a half blocks away. From her mother's home. Wow. 
The next morning, two witnesses did say they saw Jill at that donut shop, as mentioned before, on Maple uh, Road. Now, this was between between like 6 and 7 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, Jill's father, Thomas Robinson, um, made a call to the police at about 11.30 p.m. the day she left. Jill was found on the side of I-75 Road. No. Yes, north of Big Beaver Road. She was laying on her back, fully clothed, um, not bound in any way whatsoever, but a ring of deep, dark red blood surrounded her head. The Mm -hmm. killer had transported her here and then shot her at close range with a shotgun. Oh, my God. Yes. Isn't that, like, brutal? Yes, for a child. Yes. It was later decided that Jill was fed and cared for for at least three days. And she seemed to be washed, clean, and with no signs of sexual abuse at all. Hmm. And I will come back to what I am thinking about as a, like a theory behind like why that was. Yeah. Um, but to also state that, you know, that's so crazy because Jill, all, like, guess, you know, never got to spend time with her family after that point. Right. And the fact that she was still alive um, three days after that means right. that she was somewhere close by within, you know, not too far from her house. Um, that's so scary to think. So who else do we have up next? Yeah, so the third victim was actually another girl. Her name was Christine... Not even going to try to pronounce. We're going to call her Christine M. I do not want to get the last name wrong. <laughs> she was a 10-year-old girl from Berkeley, Michigan. And like some of the other victims, her parents were also divorced as well. She lived with her mom in Berkeley. And when people describe that, when people describe Christine, they say that she was shy, quiet, and an average student. She had a lot of friends at her fifth grade school at Patton Gill Elementary. She was last seen on January 2nd, and her body was found on January 21st. Police said that there were no signs of violence and that she was in the same clothes she was wearing the same day that she was last seen. Um, The mailman was actually the one who found her. His name was Jerry Woodsney. Sorry about these last names. But he saw her in a blue jacket. He saw her in a blue jacket in the snow on that same route he had been driving for over eight years. Wow. Yes. The state police sergeant, Robert Robertson, supervised the removal of the girl's body. Mm. 35 police officers from nine different departments made a task force that the prosecutor, Patterson, called the strongest effort they've ever seen in the county. Dang. Yes. This girl was important. Well, I mean, three kids get I killed. Guess, well, yeah, I, I guess they, they do make a task force. Antennas are right. going off. It's at a that serial point. killer. Yeah. So why not create a task force? The task force is actually headquartered in Southfield. Uh, Police Sergeant Joseph Kreese was charged with tracking down Christine's abductor. Christine's mother, Deborah Ashcroft, said that people keep talking about the Royal Oak Girl, which is Jill Robinson, the one that Tim mentioned. But she said, I'm not even going to think about that, which I don't blame her. No parent does. Mm-hmm. 
Ascroft said that in an interview on January 5th, 1977, at the time, Christine had two younger brothers, and according to her mother, they kept asking when was their sister going to come home. Oh, no. Yes. Shortly after Christine's disappearance, a child actually went missing at the same elementary school, which set off panic and bells at the school. A frantic search had went on for about 20 minutes to find the child, but luckily they were found on school grounds. The tensions were at an all-time high, and then parents started actually pulling their kids from the school that same day because they thought it was like an abductor on the school grounds at Pattengill Elementary. Many of them uh, will walk home, but like I said, not today. They did not walk home. Where Christine's body was found in the snowbank at the end of a dead-end street in Franklin Village, it was so frozen that officials had to actually wait for her body to thaw to do an autopsy. Oh, wow. Yes. I'm still stuck on her, them, them, the, the child that was lost in the school. Oh, yeah. Like, how did that happen? Yeah, they didn't say. Wow. Like, how do you lose a child in the school? Yes, on school, but luckily they were found on school grounds. So yeah, I I'm, I appreciate that part. They did find yes. them, but like, a where were they? B why didn't the teacher do attendance correctly? And C where were they? But yeah, they did not. That is crazy. Well, dang. Yes, and her body was that frozen. Yes, they had to wait on it to thaw. Ooh, yes. Look, that's so cringy. It is. And the mailman, he said when he found her, all he saw was a hand, and he said it had scared the hell out of him. Christine was actually the fifth youngest person, sorry, the fifth young person, not youngest, from Oakland County to die within this year. As of late January 1977, Patterson had no evidence to link Mark and Christine's death together. Mm. Yeah. I would, though. I mean, immediately, if my antennas is going off. Yeah. It's almost like Christine and Jill were kind of the same way. Oh, yeah. Well, they yeah. Their abductors had, like, the same M.O., but Marx didn't. And speaking of same M.O., yeah. it brings me to our next victim, whose name is Timothy King. And Timothy King was an 11-year-old boy who was from Birmingham, Michigan, not... To confuse Birmingham, Alabama people. Not where he was from. Timothy's parents were the only one out of all three kids who were not divorced, which I find strange because the killer clearly changed his MO up because at first he was going for, it seemed like families, this comes in my theory, families that were either married, I mean, not married. Or were separated or in a divorce, and also who were celebrating the Ro- practicing the Roman Catholic religion. Yeah. So I was like, hmm, interesting when I was, you know, doing the research. Right. So his family was, again, also Roman Catholic as well as our other um, victims. His parents would describe him as outgoing, which was pretty different from the other children because they were all considered like loners, but you know, yeah. very good students in school. Yeah. He was considered very um, outgoing. And he was very athletic as well. So, and he was well liked by his peers. So that means he had lots of friends. He, w- he was that guy in school, which 
<laughs> He's the popular kid. Right. So, um, Timothy was last seen. It's so weird saying his name. It's like my name. Yeah. So, Timothy was last seen on March 16th, and his body was found on March 23rd. So, it's a little bit of a time difference. Mm-hmm. Gap for them. On March 17th, 1977, Timothy King left his Birmingham home with 30 cents he borrowed from his older sister. Mm-hmm. 30 cents back then. What Why you getting for 30 cents here? I was just about to say, um, nothing. Uh, okay, I could go, maybe. It go like a dollar forty-five now. Oh, you talking about in today's world? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Girl, nothing. That's the tax. Like when there's something. That like, is the tax. <laughs> um, he brought this from his older sister, whose name is Catherine, and he headed to the corner store. This is something he did quite often. He wanted some candy, and it wasn't rare for him to make this trip of about three blocks. So, mind you, he was 11, taking a trip three blocks away to the, I guess, convenience store. Um, and it's crazy because times are so different now. Like, you would not let your children do something like that. Right. Um, so, he left his skateboard and football in hand, headed toward the Hunter Maple Pharmacy. Um, Tim's older brothers, he had two. They were not around. One was babysitting a neighbor's kid. The other was at rehearsing for a school play. Shout out to the Thespians. Tim's parents were out to dinner at a nearby Birmingham restaurant. So a clerk, Amy Walters, said she sold Tim the candy and he left through the back door into a parking lot at 8.30 p.m. The parking lot was dark. Like, no lights, no nothing. It's black. Yes. Wow. Um, Birmingham Chief Police Jerry Tobin said, whatever happened to Tim happened between happened between the time he left that store and before he got to the house. It doesn't look particularly good at this time. This was now the seventh child that had gone missing in that area. The sixth prior to Timothy had been found murdered. Tim was the only the second boy. The hysteria was at an all-time high, basically. And according to Catherine Tim's sister, Tim asked that she leave the front door ajar, so basically leave it a little cracked, and when he got back, he could get back in easily. Catherine also had left for the night, so that means Tim would have been at the house by himself anyway. Mm. It would have been the first time little Timmy would have been alone at night for any period of time at all, so Cause he's what? never done that before. Yeah. Um, and Catherine, like, where were you going? But anyway, Tim's parents got back to the house around about 9 p.m. to find the door had been cracked open. So immediately, my antennas, if I was them, like, we something happened. We robbed something. All like, right. So let's fix this. Uh, but there was no sign of Tim. The King family searched everywhere for Tim. They called his friends. They searched the neighborhood and the surrounding area. By 9.15 in the morning the next day, Chief Tobin called in the task force requesting mm-hmm. their full involvement. Um, by the afternoon, the day after Tim went missing, headquarters was established in Adams Firehouse just a few blocks from the King family home. So door-to-door searches was done. Nice. Um, classmates were questioned. Tim was abducted on Wednesday. By Thursday, a hundred lawmen from the Oakland and County and volunteers 
uh, of Oakland County Sheriff's investigators, the he- county helicopter, the special Oakland County Task Force. Oh, wow. All were scouring the area. Yeah. So I guess yeah, it, enough is enough now. Like, as I stated, this is the seventh child that has, you know, now gone missing. Yeah. Um, and the other were murdered. So, you know, if you're going into it, you're now not looking for him, but you're looking for a body. Mm-hmm. Um, so that Thursday, King's family decided to stay behind closed doors most of the day. But they say that Tim's father said we love him very much. He had a basketball game Saturday and missed practice today, which would be Thursday. He's active in a school play. He's an achiever and a participator. We just love Tim and want him to come home. Barry said, um, he also told the reporters that the week before Tim told his mother that he wouldn't speak to strangers, that he'd run away from them. It's awful, said a neighbor of the King family who also had an 11-year-old daughter. So I'm pretty sure she was, her antennas were at high too. So when it happens to other people, you feel sympathy. But when it strikes your neighborhood, you're scared. His body, which was still warm, was found a week later by two teenagers in a shallow ditch alongside Gill Road no. in Lavonia. I definitely said that wrong. Um, he had been sexually assault- assaulted with a foreign object, so he was oh, oh my god! And suffocated approximately six hours earlier. His skateboard was oh. found near his body. So, um, Tim is our last victim. And as you can see, he lived up until six hours before that, and he was killed. And it's crazy because, you know, a lot of the times they say that you don't, the police are always like, oh, they're a runaway and all that. But it just seems like they were so active. And when the parents filed the missile report, they immediately went ahead and did it. Yeah. So, um... I know you're probably wondering, y'all, like, well, well, who did this? And we have a few people in mind with that. Yeah, so there were a few suspects that came into play that the police followed up on. The first one was Archibald Edward Sloan. Um, Archibald Edward Sloan was a pedophile, oh, saying that word, who had victimized young boys in his neighborhood at the time of the killing had the killings had transpired. He became like the number one suspect in the Oakland County child killer case when hair samples were discovered mm-hmm. in his 1966 Pontiac Bonneville and matched the hair found on the bodies of Timothy King and Mark Stevens. Unfortunately, the hair samples didn't match any of the other victims, though. Sloan failed a polygraph test, and it was believed that Sloan often lent his car to his friends who also happened to be pedos just like him Sloan was convicted of being a pedophile he's serving a life sentence in a Michigan prison oh this sound wow. uh, it just makes my flesh cry. right oh, my God. I had a pun of Pontiac Bonneville for the, for the longest uh, I knew I the word <laughs> the next suspect is Theodore Lambrigan I think I'm pronouncing that right don't call for me Police in Parma Heights, Ohio, arrested Theodore. He was a retired auto worker who was believed to be involved in child, those type of videos, not even going to say the word. 
uh, it was one of those type of videos. Rings in, uh, in the 1970s. On March 27, 2007, investigators told um, a TV station in Detroit that Theodore was considered a top suspect in the case as well. Theodore pleaded guilty to 15 sex-related crimes that involved young boys. Wow. Rather than accepting the plea deal, which would have required him to take a polygraph test on the Oakland County child killing. He also refused an offer of a reduced sentence in exchange for a polygraph test wow. on the case. In October of 2007, the family of Mark Stevens actually filed a wrongful death lawsuit um, against Theodore and sought 25k in damages. The lawsuit alleged that Theodore, who lived in the Detroit metro area in the 1970s, had actually abducted Mark and held him captive mm. in a rural oak house for four days in February of 1976 mm. before smothering him to death during a sexual assault against him. However, Theodore had never been formally linked or charged to the death of Mark, and the Stevens family attorney, David A. Blinkley, sought compensation, which included funeral costs for Mark's brother, Michael, but stressed that the money was, quote-unquote, secondary. It's a lot to unpack in that one. Um, yeah. A, why was he offer a... Uh, like a plea, like a plea deal yes. almost when you take a polygraph test that is inadmissible in the courts so wh what yeah and I think I also read somewhere that they uncover like photos I can't remember if it was him or another guy that uncover photos from the videos that he created and it looked like Mark was in one of those. Oh. They couldn't really God. tell, but yeah. Oh, they make my flesh Jesus. Yeah. Oh gee. Well we also have um Chris Bush or Yeah. Bush. Correct. That's his name. Yeah. Um Oh, yeah. Eventually, the case sparked new interest when the father and uncle of Timothy King tied to get, tried to get the Michigan State Police to release information about Chris Bush, who was the son of Harold Lee Bush, a high-level executive for the General Motors Auto Company. Chris had been in police custody before Timothy King's abduction for suspected involvement in child pornography. In November of 1978, it was alleged that Chris had committed suicide. However, the strange thing was no gunshot residue was found on his corpse, hmm. nor was there any sign of blood in his room. Interesting. And he also had appeared to be wrapped neatly under the sheets. He was found with one bullet hole what? right between his eyes. Oh. A drawing depicting a child screaming in agony was found in Chris's house. Said child bears an eerie resemblance to Mark Stevens. That's the guy standing yes. corrected. It was Chris, yes. not Theodore. Yeah. After his, uh, I guess, attempted suicide or alleged committed, um, there was no more confirmed activity or anything from the Oakland County Wait, child Wait, after killer. Chris... Um, passed away mm -hmm. there were no other child killings in the area like zero 
all the killings stopped. Hmm. Since then, the Michigan State Police released a 3,400-page investigation records to Barry King, Timothy's father, who recently passed in 2019. Oh. Our next victim is Alan. So, um, Alan, before I read this, Alan, I feel like, was Chris, but I think it was like his code name. Yeah. Or whoever this person was, was talking about Chris. Mm. So listen, why? So, Alan, in the following weeks after the death of Timothy King, Dr. Bruce Danto, a Detroit psychiatrist who was working with the task force of the case at the time, received a poorly spelled and guilt-written letter from an anonymous writer only referred to as Alan, who claimed to be the... Um, sediomistic slave of his roommate, mm. Frank, who is believed to be the Oakland child killer. Allen wrote a pleading, remorseful, and fearful letter about how he was losing his sanity, he was endangered, and developed suicidal thoughts. Hmm. Convincing Danzo that his letter was very genuine, right? So according to Alan, he had accompanied Frank on many road trips seeking out boys, but claimed that he wasn't present during the abductions for the boys that Frank murdered. He also confirmed that Frank drove an AMC Gremlin, but he got rid of it in Ohio and it was never seen again. He also said that in the letter that Frank was traumatized from the experience of killing children during the Vietnam War in which why he had he and Alan had served. He was seeking revenge against more uh, affiliated citizens, including the residents of Birmingham. Um, he also wrote that Frank wanted to see rich people suffer um, for sending forces to Vietnam and getting nothing in return. Allen had instructed Danto to respond to the letter by printing cold words like, Weather Bureau says trees to blossom in three weeks. Published in Sunday's Free Press edition soon after Danto, Dr. Danto received a phone call from Allen in which he offered to provide photographic evidence in exchange for a letter from William McKeelan, the governor of Michigan at the time, and which guaranteed him immunity from being prosecuted. Mm. Sir, you're not getting that. Danto arranged a meeting at a bar known as the Pony Cart Bar, which was near Detroit's Palmer Woods neighborhood. However, Allen never showed up at the venue and was never seen again. Now, my theory behind that is Allen was Chris. Because everything Chris was talking about is kind of sort of was here, except for the Vietnam part. Never yeah. could find any information about him going to war. But that part had me like, whoa. Like, you never saw him again anymore. And now there are no more killings. So, right. It's like, there's no more Alan. Yeah. Um, so, was Alan really projecting himself as Frank, as in Chris? Yeah. Or was this some random person? We may mm-hmm. never know. But um, our hearts go out to the families um, and victims of these children. Um, mm-hmm. It's always hard to hear children's cases. It is really hard. And uh, we all we appreciate you all for listening. Um, thank you for joining us. I'm Tim. I'm Tiff. And this is Tiff and Tim and True Crime. Thank you. Have a good night. <laughs>
or good morning or good evening. All right. See you next episode. Bye. And it'll be here in quick, fast, and in a hurry. Period. <laughs> Cut. Y'all, I'm trying to get up. <laughs> I don't have-